From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. The following episode is a conversation with Professor Justine Cassell. Justine is world-renowned in the field of artificial intelligence and human-computer interactions. She currently splits her time between Pittsburgh and the U.S., where she is the SCS Dean's Professor at Carnegie Mellon University. At CMU, she leads several initiatives on technology-enhanced learning, personal assistance, and human-computer interaction. In Paris, she holds the founding international chair at the Paris Institute on Interdisciplinary Research in AI, holds the position of director of research at INRA Paris, and serves as a member of the governmental committee on the future of digital in France. She holds dual PhDs in psychology and linguistics and has received numerous awards and honors for her groundbreaking work on embodied conversational agents, virtual humans, and social robotics. I had the pleasure of recording with Justine at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where she's a regular speaker. Please enjoy this conversation with Professor Justine Cassell. Seeing that this is your ninth appearance here at Davos, I'm wondering if you're able to see a shift in the needle in the impact that these forums are providing. I'm I'm noticing uh, on the entrance that it says to change, to make a better world. And I'm wondering if you are seeing the impact of these meetings on making a better world. I see more startups focused on social good than on raising vast sums of money this year than I did even four years ago, which was the last time I attended. That's a really good sign. I think we need to find a metric to measure not just the success in conveying grand societal challenges to those who attend, and I hope it does change them. I hope the CEOs and other C-suite members of large multinational corporations are listening and are taking on the responsibility in ways that perhaps they didn't feel interested in doing before. But I think we also need to measure the impact on the people who listen to podcasts about Davos and the people who read news articles about these young startups to see if they too start to feel a sense of responsibility to make the world a better place. So the sessions that you have today yeah. What was the company that you were So, uh, this morning I recorded a panel with Fast Company, um, which is a media organization uh, that has pretty wide distribution. And we were talking about what people need to know about AI today. Okay. What do people need to know about AI mm-hmm. today? First of all, what people need to know is that AI is not new. The term was first used in 1956, and it was used, amusingly enough, by a group that wanted to distinguish themselves from others. And so they came up with this term because no one had used it before. But AI in one way or another has existed since then. In the old days, it consisted of watching how people did things and then teaching computers to do the same thing. And then little by little, algorithms or computer programs were built to allow the computers not to need to have the information programmed in by hand, but themselves to, in some sense, watch people understand what they did and copy it. 
And then over time, that's become getting computers to do what people do, but better than people can do it. For example, in drug discovery, computers can look at millions of combinations of um, chemicals all at once and find the best matches. And we just can't do that. You know, it would take us a year to look at that number of combinations and come up with the ones that could be useful. And so machine learning, what's called machine learning algorithms, can look at every possible combination and say, okay, what we have found is this particular combination can do good in this particular circumstance. So that's kind of the history of AI, and I think it's important. Although I, I'm a member of the Conseil National du Numérique in France, the French Digital Council, and we've advocated for broad, for both young people and adults, to get an education technically in how to be producers as well as consumers of AI, but also to understand the economics and the sociology of AI. How is it used? Why does it work the way it does? What does it mean to have an algorithm that encourages you to come back over and over again? What's sometimes called addicting algorithms. I don't believe that they're addictive according to the medical definition of that term, but they do certainly keep us in a kind of a loop of wanting to see if someone, one more person has liked what we've written or, you know, there's been one more share of something we've said, or we have one more friend and so forth. Can you touch on your background um, with uh, chatbot, for example? So my background's unusual for what I do because I have no background in computer science. I have a PhD in psychology and a PhD in linguistics. And my PhD thesis was actually on the relationship between hand gestures and language across childhood and what that told us about how young people think. Um, because I was interested in human communicative behavior, both their language and what they do with their bodies, I started looking around for tools that would help me understand that better and came up with the idea of and I really don't know where this came from in my head, of building a virtual person and how I described it in my grant proposal in those days was that it would be a Simpsons that would program itself. So what if one day, instead of animators making cartoons, cartoons had a knowledge of language and a knowledge of body language and they themselves communicated using that? And that was in 1993. And in fact, I was lucky enough to be given an amazing group of researchers to work with. And we built the first what's called embodied conversational agent. Today, people know what a conversational agent is. ChatGBT is a conversational agent. Ours had a um, cartoon body on a screen. And we would give it a communicative intention. And just to step back for a moment, in those days, there wasn't good enough language understanding to allow people to talk to a cartoon on a screen. And so we built two of them and they talked to each other. And we trained one to believe that it was a bank teller and the other to believe that it was a, blank, a bank customer. 
and we we programmed the bank customer to want to take money out of its bank account. And then we kind of sicked them on one another. And we watched what they did with their body, with their hands, with their faces, with their head movements. And that told us a lot about human communication. It told us that we didn't really understand it well enough to build those things. And so I set out on a career to do a better job of building them. This is your ninth time coming to Davos? Is that it right? is. It's my ninth time. And uh, IAI is one of the leading topics in this year's forum. It and is. Uh, what has your, been your impression on the overall ambiance and uh, subject matter this year? So AI has really been a topic for all nine years I've attended because I've spoken about it for nine years. This year, I think we're trying to educate a public that has been terrified by doomsday announcements by both individuals in the field of AI and individuals outside. And I think those individuals had their own reasons for making those doomsday statements. But virtually none of us in the field believe that AI is going to rise up and revolt against us. The joke that I make is, if there's a robot revolution, wait 40 minutes because nobody has figured out to make their, how to make their batteries last longer than 40 minutes, or stand in a puddle because they'll electrocute themselves. You know, we're really, right. things are, the problems are that huge and that basic. So I think this year we're counteracting a year of statements about all the bad things that AI can do and some pronouncements about AI setting out to do those things. Yes, AI can do some bad things, but will it in the near future? Will it in the far future? It's not independent of us. And that's the thing that's bugged me about what I'm hearing this year, even at Davos, is this sense that AI autonomously is going to set out to do evil. It's our choice. And when I see fear on the part of citizens, to me, what it says is we are scared of what we've become, not of what AI has become. We're scared of our motives, our desires to put money ahead of people's well-being. I'm I'm a little bit curious about the more nuanced changes. Like last night, for example, I had a conversation with somebody who runs seminars on misinformation. Mm. And uh, one of the examples of the exercises that she does would be to tell a story that was absolutely ridiculous of like the health benefits of eating cookies. And uh, the exercise was, if I don't get this wrong, is like, if you think this is true, stand up. Right. And so the participants, you know, there was individuals who felt really strongly or were, you know, individuals, individually minded, and they would stand up. And then the, that was a very small minority, but the massive majority of the people looked around. And then the hurt effect sort of takes place mm. where they, they decide based on the people around you. I'm wondering if you're, you see some of, some concerns there that we're slightly shifting this herd effect through suggestions made through our own language models. 
I think we have seen a tremendous rise in misinformation that has nothing to do with AI. And the example that comes to mind, of course, is conveying to a very large population that swallowing bleach will protect you from COVID. Right. That has nothing to do with chatbots. And yet, a huge segment of the population bought into it. A very, very dangerous idea that wasn't even probably really believed in by the person who conveyed it. To me, what that says is our educational system really has to put a tremendous focus on teaching young people how to assess the evidence basis for what they hear. The herd effect comes from looking at how many people nod rather than looking at the evidence for a statement. And if education doesn't teach that evidence is what we need to assess, then I think it's a broken education system. So for me, it's more fundamental than AI. It's about, well, so two decades ago, my students would go online and find uh, texts that believed the same thing that they did. And so they would cite them in papers. And I would have to point out that what they had found was undergraduate student papers. And, and this has continued, of course. You know, you can buy student papers, but that doesn't mean they're good student papers. And that says to me that there's a flaw in how we're teaching young people, that they still don't know the difference between a journal and a magazine, and a magazine and a student paper. So to me, I step back from AI. Yes, there may be more of it, but the fundamental problem is the same. Critical thinking, media literacy, exactly. those topics need to be tackled at the educational level. Exactly. And when we educate young people, so I, I've, I've heard people across Davos say that everyone should be taught programming. I don't actually believe that because pro what programming is is changing so rapidly. But if we're going to teach programming in exactly that same class, we need to teach grand societal challenges, ethics, the sociology of computer science, and the economics of computer science. Do you think that some of the responsibility in educating the public lies within uh, the news media? I do. I do. I think it's really essential to point out what evidence has been used for a statement. I noticed that the New York Times has gotten much more strict about this. At the end of each of their articles about, for example, what's going on in Ukraine, they have a paragraph about how they came up with that. And I think that's essential because it's teaching readers to pay attention to where the information came from. Do you see a way that the news media, members of the press, can have a better relationship and a better understanding of people in the field of research and development within AI? I think media is in a hard place right now because you have to get articles out fast, and lots of them. 
and that incites journalists to cut corners. For example, using ChatGPT as a source is inevitably going to lead to untrue information. ChatGPT was built for coherence, not accuracy. That is, its goal is to keep the conversation going as long as possible, not to convey accurate information. I think my favorite example is when I asked it, if it takes one woman nine months to make a baby, how many months does it take nine women to make babies? And it replied, if it takes nine months for one woman, clearly it takes one month for each of nine women. <laughs> That's hilarious and dangerous for any kid who's trying to learn about biology. Right. And with total confidence. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little bit about the history of AI and how long it's been around. And I think one of the reasons it's come to the forefront of the public is this uh, anthropomorphizing of the technology. And uh, I see you as the right person to talk about this more as it becomes more and more human-like. Um, do you see that it becomes more influential? Do you see, and when I say it, the tool, does it become more influential to the public? For somebody who built the first AI with a body, I have perhaps a paradoxical position on this. I only put bodies on AIs when they serve a concrete purpose for a specific task. So, for example, there are places where embodied movements, head nods, eye gaze, smiles, can help to create a social bond between the user of the technology and the technology itself in cases where, such as in educational software, that bond increases children's performance on, for example, math. But I never build photorealistic bodies. On the contrary, all of the AIs that I build are gender ambiguous, ethnicity ambiguous, and very cartoon-like. I don't want anybody to confuse them for real people. Tomorrow evening, I'm giving a talk in a session on the metaverse, and the, um, the organizer said, um, it's pretty exciting how photorealistic we can make things these days. And I said, I have to warn you that I'm going to vote against photorealism. And he said, oh, well, that's good. It's good to have differing opinions. And I do vote against it because I think part of our responsibility as technologists is to build what's increasingly called transparent AI. But transparent AI, not just that reveals the algorithm that made the decision, but that reveals the steps that led to that decision and the sources that were fed into those steps that led to the decision. I noticed that Google's Bard now has a version for teens that's a lot more transparent about its sources, and I think that's a really good thing. It's especially important for young people, I think. Is this how we cultivate a culture of trust and uh, understanding with the technology? I think that trust between the developers of technology and the business units that distribute technology and the users is of paramount importance. 
in the same way trust between governments that use AI and citizens of those governments, trust is paramount. And so, yes, transparent AI, technologies that reveal their flaws, for example, making it clear the extent to which some LLMs uh, may, what we call hallucinate, may make things up, that's really important. It's important as a teaching tool, and it's important for the users of that technology in the long term. I wonder if we can talk about the data that feeds these, because mm-hmm. you you just touched on the trust of uh, the developers, and these are generally private companies. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're at an impasse as public service broadcasters. Our need to contribute data, uh, the news that we collect, um, the broadcasting that is done, um, as a sense of truth, uh, as a sense of uh, a source of truth. Mm-hmm. However. The, the opposite argument is why should public service media organizations help private companies? Right. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah. So I'm going to step, step back and give an example from healthcare and then treat the, the media example. Um, I was a fire starter last night at a dinner for ASEAN ministers, Southeast Asian countries. And I gave an example that concerns trust between healthcare organizations and governments and people in those countries and who are treated by those healthcare organizations. The least educated and least literate individuals in healthcare contexts often distrust the most official organizations. And they have good reason because history tells us that their data was used and misused without attribution, without pay, for ends that they may not have agreed with. However, if they refuse the use of their data, then the healthcare solutions that those organizations come up with will not apply to that population. A concrete example is diabetes, which affects the African-American population in the United States and particularly poor African-Americans disproportionately. In part, that comes from the fact that those, the data from those individuals has been less fed into the algorithms that come up with the healthcare solutions. And, And that's dangerous. It's the same with healthcare organizations that didn't even collect data on heart attacks in women. And so the drugs that are used don't work for women. And it turns out that heart attacks in women look totally different. Okay, now if we move to the media example, media is right to be wary of data being used by algorithms that may not be fair, that may not be transparent, But if they withhold that data, then the algorithms are likely to be less fair and less transparent. And this requires an agreement between media organizations and the companies that are going to use those data. And of course, uh, New York Times has just given a great example because they've just brought a lawsuit against OpenAI for the use of their data. There's another reason why this is important. We say in AI, garbage in, garbage out. If the data isn't good, 
the algorithm won't be good. If a population has been left out, the algorithm will be bad. This was the case famously with the first software that recognized faces, and the people who built the algorithm just didn't notice that there were no black faces in the corpus, in the body of pictures. And machine learning is just an advanced branch of statistics. When there are few instances of a category, the machine learning makes mistakes because it didn't train on lots of examples. It didn't see lots of examples. And so those algorithms famously and unfortunately classified black faces as monkeys. It's horrifying. Well, wow. Yeah. And Joy Buolamini, who's here at Davos, uh, is the person who's most associated with revealing those issues and with working to correct them. So if media organizations don't contribute their data, and if the organizations that use their data don't fairly compensate them for it, we're going to get junk. We're going to get more hallucinations. One thing that I'm worried about in the future of AI is that many of these large language models are tr continuing to train on online data. But more and more online data was created by those large language models, and it's flawed. And so in some sense, it's creating garbage and then consuming its own garbage. And I think that has the risk of resulting in the implosion of those algorithms. Interesting. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. I have this understanding that the AI environment or architecture are islands in a way, right? They have, they're able to communicate with the internet, but are individual language models training each other. For example, is OpenAI in direct communication with BARD or? Not necessarily, not that I know of, but it is, for example, training on Wikipedia. And there are increasing numbers of Wikipedia articles written by... Unverified sources. Right. Right. Large language models themselves. Hmm. Do you see any comparison in the way that the news is covering the emergence of AI in its current form with the way that was the coronavirus uh, pandemic was covered? Mm. And even before then, I think we have examples. It's interesting because when I was a kid, I saw no use for the study of history. <laughs> Very short-sighted of me. Uh, when I moved to France for the first time, uh, I began to become interested in the world wars. You can't not be when you live in Europe because you're meeting people who suffered through those wars and whose children were impacted by the suffering of their parents. And when I began working on AI and began talking about AI, I started to become interested in the history of human reactions to technology. And what I discovered was we're in a process that has started with the beginning of time. I have found quotes from the heads of monasteries saying that religion has been lost because with the printing press, priests are no longer copying out the Bible. And if you don't copy it out by hand, you won't understand it. 
Mm. So that was the printing press. More recently, I found a great source that said that with copy machines, it actually said Xerox machines, books will disappear. So the printing press did not get rid of religion, and Xerox machines did not get rid of books, and television did not destroy the American family, nor did radio before it. I read a quote from a parent that said, my child has murder on the mind. I know it's those things. I know it is. And the thing was radio. And it's so familiar to us. So we're in a cycle of excitement, fear, and then understanding. But understanding only works if it teaches us to pay more attention and to push for what's good and push against for what's bad. COVID had some really unfortunate effects on the population of different countries, both medical effects, but also misinformation effects. It increased the number of people who believed that vaccines are tools of evil individuals. That's not true. And yet, somehow, this terrible disease that destroyed such huge swaths of the population of the world led to people believing that it should go unstopped. It makes no sense. And we're only going to come out of that loop if we start to educate early about what science is and its importance something that we may have lost sight of recently. You have a personal connection to other projects that have invoked a lot of public fear. Uh, you're, if I have this correct, right, your grandfather was uh, worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Do you see any correlation between his work, um, the development of the Manhattan Project, and AI? So my grandfather was in Tennessee, Every Monday morning, he traveled to Tennessee from his home in New York. He didn't know what he was working on. My father told me that his father told him he was working on the largest light bulb ever seen. So he knew it had something to do with energy. I don't know what his reaction was afterwards, unfortunately. I wish I did. He didn't want to talk about it like many of the people who worked on it. But I do know that Oppenheimer and others who worked on the project believed that they were going to stop a terrible war and that they were going to destroy the country that had launched that war, that they were going to stop Germany. And only very late found out that the bomb was going to be used in Japan. What worries me is when they began the project, they wanted to stop Germany. But they also wanted to find truth. And that's where I see the parallel with artificial intelligence. They were scientists. They believed that the goal of science was to discover truth. And in AI, many of us are engineers. We just want to build cool things. And many of us are scientists like me. I have a background in, in science, not in engineering. And I want to find out truth. I want to find out 
how humans work. I use AI in large part to better understand people. But I have been reminded that the tools that I build can be used for ill. And so I'm in perhaps not quite as horrible a bind as Oppenheimer was and his colleagues, but I find myself in this era of wondering whether things are similar. And I said on a podcast recently, I revealed that I cried throughout the movie Oppenheimer. I didn't expect to at all. I didn't expect it to remind me of my grandfather. I didn't, I didn't know they were going to mention Tennessee as well as New Mexico. I didn't expect to see what pure science looked like for them and how important it was. And I had no suggestion before walking into that theater that I was going to see parallels with our work today, but I did. There is something about the AI and its writing style, for example, while it can change uh, on while prompted, um, there is a certain perfection to it. Uh, I'm not talking about the accuracy, but the the writing itself is near perfect. Mm-hmm. And when us as humans, and, and I think that this applies to automated uh, radio shows, automated uh, broadcasts, anything that's automated to, to a, for a human consumption. At first notice, we're a little bit off put. And I think that there's something within us that sees beauty in the imperfection of humanity. And I wonder if what you were talking about before about making this clear distinction between the AI characters and uh, realistic, photorealistic characters plays into that sort of sense of, of imperfection and beauty. This is a great question because it evokes an example from, I believe it's the 18th century, a short story called The Sandman. In The Sandman, a young man has been spurned by his beloved And so he goes searching for another woman to marry. And in an an evening party, he meets a young woman who's perfect. She knows how to sing. She knows how to speak well. She knows how to dance and do embroidery. And he falls head head over heels in love with her and wants to marry her. And at the end of the story you discover that she's an automaton. Because in the 1700s, automata, just like what we build today, uh, were built. And it's actually really parallel. And I wrote about this in an article around a decade ago. So scientists used automata to better understand how people used their hands to write, how um, priests had an impact on their... uh, congregations. There was an amazing priest automaton that advanced towards you with a rosary in its hand, and it was really intense, stared you right in the eye. And first, people were fascinated by them for their scientific value. Then they thought they were cool, and so they started buying them for their homes. Then they became terrified of them, because what if the automata took over? And it's just like today. So, 
When I build chatbots, I do make them imperfect. For example, in 2017, my students and I brought a demo to Davos, and it was the very first demo in Davos set up in the main Congress Center, and more than 300 world leaders used it. Uh, it was a system called Sarah, the Socially Aware Robot Assistant. It helped world leaders find people who might share interests with them and find sessions that might interest them. And people came back to use it over and over again. And one day a WEF employee came up to me and said, I think Sarah's starting to like me. <laughs> <laughs> now, he knows perfectly well, somewhere in him, that Sarah does not like him. But he had suspended disbelief and had some need for Sarah to like him. But Sarah said things like, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to do that. I told my programmers they should program that into me, and they didn't listen. So it revealed flaws throughout the conversation. And all the things that I build for kids, for example, for education, say, I'm sorry, I'm just a piece of software. I don't know how to do that. And I think that's very important. What would you like journalists and heads of news department to take away from this interview? Take some time and educate yourself about the technology. We should all be producers and not just consumers. It's not going to break if you play with it. So play with it and see if you can break it. See if you can figure out what makes ChatGPT come up with bad answers versus good answers. And likewise for other large language models. And then look into the economics. What makes it profitable? What makes people use these algorithms over and over again? That's more the sociology or the psychology of the use of these AI systems. Once you have a better rounded understanding of it, then you can start seeing what it can do for good, what it might do for ill, and you can start helping people understand how themselves to push it towards solving grand societal challenges. I think engineers need to be educated with a, 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 that well-rounded understanding of AI and the grand societal challenges that it can address so that it's not post-hoc. You know, you don't give an ethics class to a grown-up engineer. You teach ethics in the first year of university. And I think that media plays a huge role both in steering people towards good and in helping them understand the landscape and contributing to that landscape with truth. This has been a fascinating conversation. Professor Cassell, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.